inviting you to join us. Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the Physical Culture, Music, and Art Show, streaming live from 100 Bogart Street in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. I am Vincent Mezzo, Dean of Discipline, Dean of Personal Training, and your host today, the man with a face for radio. (laughs) And today we are here with Two different guests. Our first guest is Carl Sterling, and our second guest is Gavin Van Vlack. Carl Sterling runs Parkinson's Regeneration Training. That's parkinsonsregenerationtraining.com. He's a NASA Master Instructor based in Syracuse, New York, and is the CEO and creator of Parkinson's Regeneration Training and its education program, where he trains personal trainers to work with clients who have Parkinson's disease. Carl speaks at conferences all over the country, specifically about training for people with Parkinson's disease and the incredible benefit that that can have. And while his extensive experience as a trainer includes working with a variety of populations, he primarily specializes in working with clients who have movement disorders. Welcome, Carl. Thank you, Vince. Great to see you again. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. And I'm really excited about hearing more about the Parkinson's work you're doing. But the concept of this show is how incredible it is that people who are artists end up in this fitness industry. You know, we, we met through fitness, but it turns out we both have music backgrounds, et cetera. So I'm really interested in exploring that. How did you first get into music? Well, uh, I grew up in a musical household. So both of my parents are musicians. Uh, My dad was a drummer, composer, arranger. He had, a big band. Um, they met my my parents met at Ithaca College, and where they were both majoring in music. And Mom graduated, went on to uh, teach, like in a school system. And Dad, I mean, he was a pretty in demand uh, drummer. He was working all the time. So I grew up in that environment. Um, when I was nine years old, I'd already been fooling around on drums for a while. Mm-hmm. My dad took me to see Buddy Rich. Oh, okay. That sealed the deal. Uh-huh. That had, I had to be a drummer. So that, I mean, that was it. That's how I got into it. Awesome. And then I just started, you know, listening to all the Buddy Rich albums and a lot of other stuff my parents had turned me on to and, you know, just practicing all the time. Yeah. And then what sort of music did you end up playing? Did you do more jazz, swing, big band kind of stuff? Did you play rock? Well, you know, it's interesting. So my first, uh, I used to go out with my dad. And so he had a big band. So I would do big band stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was very young. I was 12, 13. 
and he would play most of the sets, you know, the stuff, but I would do maybe two or three songs, or we had, you know, congas and bongo drums, you know, uh-huh. so I would do some percussion, because he taught me that too. But um, when I was, gee, I think maybe 12 or 13, I saw Chick Corea with Return to Forever, mm-hmm. and that completely switched my direction. Uh-huh. So while I still did a lot of jazz, for for, for the whole time I played um, big band and swing and this and that, um, I quickly took another turn, discovered Miles Davis, discovered John Coltrane, Herbie Hancock. Um, I, I just, my world opened up. And so to answer the question, uh, it would depend upon finance, finances at the time, like, mm-hmm. cause it's not easy to be a drummer and make mm-hmm. a living. Right. So I, I was doing all kinds of gigs, you know, I would do small group, uh, rock and roll stuff, quartet, um, um, we did polkas sometimes. I played in a polka band. Um, but in the end, though, the last like 15 or so years, pretty much R&B and contemporary jazz. Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. Then what got you interested in fitness? How did you make that switch from music to fitness? Good question. So, I was living a musician lifestyle. I never got into drugs or anything like that, but I did get into eating a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> not moving much. And I was pushing 300 pounds. Oh, wow. I was a very big mm-hmm. boy. And I know this is radio, so you can't see Carl now unless you saw us on Facebook, but Carl is a tall man. You're six, six something. Six two. And now I'm but like he's felt 225. I could do better than I am now, but. At least it's 75 pounds lighter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you look fit also. You look healthy. Thank you. Basically, that story is is this. I went to the doctor, who's actually a friend of mine, for physical. He just scared me. He's like, dude, Mm -hmm. you have to make changes because you're real close to COPD. I never smoked, but I still have Mm -hmm. like, this is my weeks, but the respiratory area. Uh If I'm going to get sick, it's going to be bronchitis or something, right? So... Bottom line is, I hired a trainer from the parking lot when I left the doctor's office. <laughs> I called a guy. I knew. Were there just trainers hanging out in the parking lot? I, <laughs> I, knew, I didn't know that. I knew a guy. <laughs> and I was actually, I was in tears. I was crying. I'm in the parking lot. I said, oh my gosh, I've made so many bad decisions. And I called this guy, Eric Prager, who's still a good friend. I'm like, okay, can we start tomorrow? But I don't care what the cost is. So I started going um, three times a week. And on the off days, I still use this gym to do other stuff. Six months later, I'm down like 35 pounds. He, he also uh, had a nutrition or dietitian, mm-hmm. right? So they, and they were a good dietitian. Uh-huh. They're the good ones and they're the other ones. Right, right. Not against that word. I'm just saying that in every business, well, there's the better ones. Well, did you do ones. your degree in dietetics also? N- no, I, well, I did study nutrition. Mm-hmm. I ended mm-hmm. up, I didn't finish that because I didn't really like that program. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit, probably not up to date enough with our current food supply Mm -hmm. situation. But um, I decided I want to be a trainer. So I feel so good. If I could help anybody else feel this good. So I went, I studied and um, looked around research, decided I'd do NASM. So I did that. Mm -hmm. And then it took like a year to get in front of a client because I was paranoid. Because I also felt Uh like I didn't look fit enough. Yeah, people Just have that misconception, you know, they think thing that I was yeah. going through at the time. Mm-hmm. 
But you know what? Um, losing like 70 pounds and more than that is feeling good mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. energy. I finally got up the courage I got in front of people. And I went in, I did go to school at Syracuse University. I uh, went into the nutrition program. They ended up hiring me to train. Mm-hmm. And they just loaded me up with clients. It's the best. It was the best for that because I was my schedule was jamming. So I got mm-hmm. so much experience with you know administrators, grad students, a few undergrads, um, faculty, and that's where I met my first uh, client with Parkinson's. He was my economics uh-huh. teacher. Oh wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. Jerry Evensky. He won't mind if I say his name because he's the one who seven years, seven and a half years ago. Um, so that was my first experience. And mm-hmm. I have a little bit more I can add to that, which is the only reason I said yes to him because I was scared. Uh-huh. Of course. Like, what am I going to do? When you know, you're a new trainer and you have somebody you know, who has this condition that you've heard about and, you know, you have to research training for it one and, year and all mm-hmm. of a sudden I've got this. But my son was in medical school and he was also doing it. So MD, PhD program. Uh-huh. So Nick was basically his PhD is in Parkinson's uh, mm-hmm. has to do with brain imaging. Oh. So I said yes to Jerry. Cause I'm like, I know I can call up Nick and I said, uh-huh. Dude, what do I do? <laughs> and he actually wasn't sure he had some ideas, but he plugged me into the right people. And it mm-hmm. just, I was so fascinated when you look at the brain and the nervous system and the, the possibilities, which of course I learned so much more in the past few years and it keeps evolving like on a, on a weekly basis, it seems there's some learning. Oh my gosh, we can try this. Like the Indian club thing that I want right, to come to your workshop, right? right? Absolutely. The I, crossing the midline stuff, yeah. the bilateral coordination, all the rhythmic nature of it and how that affects exactly. the brain in healthy people as well as people with movement. Exactly. Disorders. So, you know, it ended up just um, being a journey that's fascinating. And what I love most about it is when People with Parkinson's come into a workshop because we have everybody's there. It's trainers, mm-hmm. physios, sometimes doctors, caregivers, people with Parkinson's. Uh, when they, when they, let's say, regain to some degree some ability they didn't have when they walked mm-hmm. in the door, and many times they walk in feeling defeated, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they switch to. I can do this. I'm a fighter. I have some hope and it's not false. It's actually mm-hmm. real. Right. And their self image and their self efficacy and everything improves. Is that is the most gratifying thing ever for me in this business so far. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you hit on a couple of things that a couple of themes that come up a lot, which is that, Drums are one of which is that drums are a pretty athletic instrument. I mean, you know, the guitar players get sweaty, but the drummer is always sweaty. The drummer is always back there, you know, banging on the skins, using the arms and the legs and really his whole body. But you can be a drummer, you can be a musician and still be 300 pounds and still be unhealthy because people don't seem to understand a lot that there is a difference between activity and exercise. Oh, yes. And, you know, that's something that we have such a problem with in the industry is getting people to make that distinction. Oh, I walk a lot. Oh, I move a lot. Oh, I garden a lot. But it's not really the same. And certainly from a neurological point of view, you build efficiency. 
You know, if you learn oh, a technique totally. and you can be an amazing drummer because you have amazing technique and you've put in all of these hours of practice so you're so efficient that you can actually play yeah. with expending very little energy and then your caloric balance goes off and you become 300 pounds. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, that's I think it's true with a lot of things, right? You can build up efficiency in your body. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you still need to train to move beyond that. Could you now tell us a little bit about the fundraising you're doing for yeah. the Parkinson's project? So it's based on the same uh, um, premise or whatever is my courses that I teach. And that is that uh, as I've, cause I've been teaching all over the world. I've been in many different countries. Um, it's been really great to travel and meet people and learn, you know, every time, well, you teach, you mm-hmm. teach all the time, and you know yeah. how it is. You learn That's from very the people. rewarding, yeah. Yeah, and I that think interaction. I, I probably learn more than they do <laughs> because there's a lot of them and just one of me. But, but fortunately, they learn too. But what I'm finding is um, things that I'm used to it now. But I've been finding, and I'm still surprised every now and then. It, I'll deliver some information, and they're like, "What, really?" And I, I just would assume they would know this. And they don't know it, whatever it is, right? Oh, my gosh. Well, let me clarify this, too. We need our doctors. We need our neurologists. We need certain medications. We need our physical therapists. So anything I say is not meant to, um, to diminish them yeah. and not mm-hmm. to replace. This is actually to complement the excellent work that they do. Uh, without them, it'd be a whole different deal. Uh, they We can't do things without them as effectively and as it turns out, they're not doing as much as they can do without us, but their hands are tied too, right? There's, there are limitations on, on that world with the, how much time you can spend with a patient and this and that. So bottom line is I see like a spectrum. The spectrum is on one side you have functional life for the person with the problem. Then you have all the other the, the entities that are out there, physical therapy, neurology, doctors, things we were just mentioning – and how much of that they're getting, but it all has a limit. And then in between that and functional life, it's this huge void. Mm-hmm. And the void is mostly education. Like, mm. of course, there's, well, well, the stuff we teach of things they can do that help them reduce fall risk, move better, and improve quality of life. Well, that's, uh, that's also lacking. That void is lacking in research. I'd love to do research and raise money through my nonprofit organization mm-hmm. I started um, and do some Indian club research. I mean, seriously, uh-huh, I, absolutely. Don't, I don't know you if know, there, they've just gotten into doing kettlebell research, you yeah. know, since the resurgence 20 years ago or so. But Indian clubs are certainly another thing that needs to be studied more and is becoming more popular. So yeah. you basically, you were able then for this fundraiser, and the CD you're doing to put sort of your two loves together then. That's how that happened, yeah. So just going back for one second. So this is, am I allowed to mention the fundraiser? It's, oh, absolutely. Okay, so Please mention the fundraiser Parkinson's, as much as possible. Okay, thank you. Yes, it's a 501c3 nonprofit registered state of New York. Uh, my son and um, myself are the founders and directors. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I pretty much run it because he's – He's a doctor in Atlanta. He's busy. 
<laughs> but um, but he helps me with a lot of things too. So our goal is to raise funding to help to um, do research actually, and then deliver the results in an education format, and then mm-hmm. teach that. So uh, we have a lot of different things we're working on. We have universities ready to go in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and one in Italy. So Parkinson's globalproject.org is the website. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if people go there, they can see uh, the, the list of the first four studies and details and what we want to do in the description for their contribution. Of um, They can contribute anything they want, but $30 will get you a copy of the CD when it comes out in June. And then awesome. there's, there are other things, mm-hmm. other levels, mm-hmm. some premier sponsorship levels. So, yes, I was thinking, well, a friend of mine called me last year. He's the producer of this CD, and he says, a friend of mine with a guitarist in L.A. has Parkinson's. Can you help him? Maybe just some Skype stuff. I said, yeah, yeah, who is it? And he tells me the name is, um, I have permission to say this, Jeff Richman. I'm like, Jeff Richman, oh, my gosh, I've been following this guy for like 25 years. Mm-hmm. So now we're friends. Now we're recording a CD together because the three of us decided together, let's do like a, a Parkinson's CD awareness, uh, Parkinson's awareness CD, and we'll use proceeds to go towards uh, funding research and things like that. Awesome. So this is my first mm-hmm. project that's a blend of my old life with my new life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so instead of music for a gig, it's just music with a mission. Uh-huh, music with a mission. And so this is still, these are rough mixes now. But you do have something to play for us. I do. Great. I do. So you want to do a lead-in and uh, let us know what the song is and what it's about? Sure. So this song is written for a trombone player, and I feel really bad. I cannot remember his last name because I didn't know him personally, but I believe it was written by the Brecker brothers, Randy Brecker, Michael Brecker, mm-hmm. probably back in the 80s. It's called Song for Barry. Barry was... Uh, um, a great trombonist who died too young. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we have a rough mix here. Awesome. And yep. it's a hit play. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is song for Barry.
You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, streaming live from beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is the Physical Culture Music and Art Show. I'm Vincent Metzo, and I'm here with Carl Sterling, who was just playing one of the cuts from the new Parkinson's CD. Can you give us the URL again for the fundraising website, Carl? Yeah, sure. Thank you. It's uh, parkinsonsglobalproject.org. Right. And, and then if you make a certain level of donation, you'll mm-hmm. get a copy of the CD. And are there any other artists on the CD that you want to plug? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, primarily, let's start with my friend Jimmy Haslip, bass player. He's the producer. Uh-huh. Actually co-producing. He decided he's co-producing with um, Scott Kinsey, who's a keyboard player, who's, I mean, I'm, another situation I've been following Scott since about 1991. Mm-hmm. And now... This, we're working together. It's really cool. So Scott Kenzie on keys, Jeff Richmond's on guitar, and he's been on. All these guys are. Uh, it's a little surreal to me because, like I was saying off radio beforehand, I would have loved to work with these guys when I was a musician mm-hmm. for a living. And now it's actually happening. I no longer am a musician for a living, but uh-huh. yeah, Jeff actually has Parkinson's, but he's fighting it he's doing well been working with him for a few months uh skype wise uh, to help him and then let's see we have uh peter erskine former weather report drummer uh worked with lots of different bands Joni mitchell steely dan chick Corea. he guest drums on two songs the other two i know will be brandon fields the saxophonist will be playing on one song bob reynolds on another song and we'll have some vocalists and i don't know who yet but, uh-huh. uh, yeah and paul tavener i have to mention paul paul tavener is the owner of the studio and the engineer and i've never had a recording experience as great as paul he makes it so easy that's wonderful yeah, it's really cool so getting back to your personal story carl how do you find that your experience your training as a drummer has translated into the work you do in fitness, or has it? Are they totally separate for you, or do you find that there's more of a, a connection? You know, that's a really good question. What I discovered after I was training for a while and felt confident, sort of, and <laughs> what I was doing is I discovered that there's room for creativity mm-hmm. as long as you're not hurting somebody. I mean, you know, the... You can be creative and do silly things that are mm-hmm, just don't that make are frivolous any sense. Or, and we right. see in our industry, unfortunately, we see that here and there. But there's a lot of room for creativity. And that's one of my favorite parts of this is that you know, no two workshops are exactly the same. A lot what I teach comes from a lot of it from the progressive neurologists out there who are really into movement and retraining the brain to make mm-hmm. new neural firing patterns and pathways. And so you have different concepts of training and retraining the brain and moving. And within those concepts is a room for a ton of creativity. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's a form of improvisation for me, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is what I did as a drummer in the type of music I played. Awesome. Then do you see any, you still play drums. You're playing on some of the tracks on the CD. Yeah, I'll play on, I think, most of them. Um, so you still practice regularly? 
well, semi-regularly. That's okay. He's looking very shy and bashful I, now. So I'm sorry, but no. Uh huh. I actually practiced for about 45 minutes before I went to do the CD, and I haven't played a gig in five years. And I should practice, but I just never mm -hmm. liked it. And it was how, do, how does it feel since you, you know, since you dropped weight from being 300 pounds, you were still playing, and now how does the does the fitness affect your playing at all? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And is that just from a it's physical good. point of view, or do you find neurologically also there's some connection or feedback? I really think it has to do with all that, plus my self-esteem is different now. You know, when I was a lot uh, heavier, I actually mm -hmm. felt embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And I tried to cover it up and act a certain way, but I wasn't feeling Is good. that why drummers have put all sorts of symbols and stuff and they get more and more toms? I don't know, but so nobody can I see know them. that being behind a drum set made it so they couldn't see as much. And But, you know, when I sat down behind the set last week in L.A., I'm like, first of all, it's a Yamaha custom recording series, which is really nice. They're such great drums. They make it easy to play. It just felt good. It's like, Oh man, this feels this feels mm -hmm. good. So I've actually thought about maybe practicing. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Great. It's crazy. So can you tell us one more time about the Parkinson's website and uh, where sure. people can donate and how they can get involved? Okay, sure. So Parkinson's Global Project org. That's the place to go, and right there you'll see a very detailed list of the studies we want to do and the things you can get for your donation. Awesome. Thank you so much hey, thanks, for coming, thanks. Carl. It's really good to see you again. And we're going to be back in a minute with Gavin Van Vlack, the director and owner of Physical Culture Collective and also the guitar player from Burn. Cool. But first we're going to do a new research segment with Professor Vic Geary. Exercise Science with Professor Vic Geary. Thank you, Dean. Today... I present the research study that looks at kettlebells and the teen obesity. Eating kettlebells may beat teen obesity. The research done at Vorensky Farming Institute. They analyzed the diet of the adolescents at the Farming Institute for three years. They find that teens that eat the kettlebells for breakfast have lower percentage of calories from saturated fat and more iron in the diet. Regular breakfast eaters also more likely to be physically active. Over time, the teens that eat the breakfast gain less weight and have lower body mass index than the teens that skip the breakfast. So, we see clearly here that the physical activity teens are more likely to eat the breakfast. So we say that activity causes the breakfast. For Americans that want to have breakfast, you first must be active. Vic, darling, I think you confuse the correlation with the causation. Ah, yes, Natasha, spasiba. We try again next week, Mr. Dean. This has been Exercise Science with Professor Vic Giri. And we're back. This is Radio Free Brooklyn and the Physical Culture Music and Art Show. I'm here now with Gavin Van Vlack. Gavin is an established name in the fitness and wellness and combat sports community in New York City. 
and he's the director of Physical Culture Collective, which is right here in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. Gavin holds an associate's degree from the Swedish Institute for Massage and is nationally certified and is a nationally certified master trainer. He's highly recognized in the martial arts community as a crew, which is a high-level instructor, and he works with clients from competitive athletes all the way to absolute fitness beginners, as well as helping clients with corrective exercise and rehabilitation strategies. So welcome, Gavin. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. It's great. It's so funny to hear those words put together. Beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. From where we come from, too. You'd never, that's an odd pairing. You know, you think about back in the 80s in New York City. It wasn't so beautiful. It was was like, if you liked blight, it was blightful. You know, it was blightful. Blightful Bushwick. Bushwick. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's... uh, yeah, this neighborhood is definitely it's it's uh, you know it's on a, on a big come up right now, and it's interesting because I know that you you know you're 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 a New Yorker who like you know those of us who lived in New York in the '80s saw really the birth of that. And that wasn't the birth of it; was really the capitalization of like what we call gentrification. Mm-hmm. And you know, after a while, when you start to live through it, and you see it in the Lower East Side, then you saw it in Williamsburg, and mm-hmm. then the yeah, second man. they started calling it East Williamsburg, and it's like they start, you know, yeah, all the as spe- soon as it gets initials and an yeah. acronym, then exactly you all the all the yeah everything in everything everything in Manhattan is a hoe, right? Low ho, so ho, no ho. You know, I've jokingly called, I still live in the Lower East Side. I live in the building that we opened as a homestead in 1989. And I jokingly call our neighborhood now Murray Hill South. (laughs) Just because it's so much different from what the East Village we grew up in used to be. Right. You know. So when did you come and open Physical Culture Collective in Bushwick? We opened in uh, 2015. Um, We were at a point where my partner and I, Jenny Livingston, we're at a point where we were, we had been offered uh, to go work for a, a, a studio out in, uh, out in San Diego, which a friend of mine owns. And we were like, really, really looking at that. Cause we were like, Oh, well, what are we going to do in New York? So on and so forth. And, um, and this opportunity availed itself for this space, which used to be, it was like an after hours strip club uh-huh. and it's upstairs from a motorcycle shop. It's funny. And uh, the guy who owns the motorcycle shop is my landlord. So we went in and looked at it and Jenny, Jenny has a degree in interior design and I'm just kind of looking at it because it still looks like a strip mm-hmm. club. And she's like, Oh, we can make this work. And I know everybody's, uh, Oh, did you save the stripper poles? No, we didn't save the stripper <laughs> poles. Um, uh, it's, but we came in and we very, we've been very mom and pop for, mm-hmm. you know, we haven't done a huge marketing push. We've, uh, you know, done a lot of it by word of mouth and dropping flyers and a lot, you know, the social media and stuff like that. Um, you know, we're, we're a small, we're a small box boutique gym. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a really, really awesome martial arts program as well as our athletic development program, which, um, you know, I like to call it that because basically when someone comes in um, and we, I don't, you know, I have several, I have a bunch of pro athletes that I work with. Actually, when mm-hmm. I came in, I was talking, there's a pro athlete that's going to be coming over here from Bali. Who's looking for a fight and a place to train at. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, he wants to set up shop at my spot. I, and I love those guys. I love our competitive jujitsu players. I love our competitive Muay Thai fighters, but Jenny and, and Mai's vision when we came in was kind of like get people off the couch and get them in love with movement again, mm-hmm. because 
the fitness paradigm, and we've worked on this end of it for so long mm-hmm. that Maybe we on the yeah, martial arts on end. the martial arts end, mm-hmm. and like those like martial arts and parkour and free movement, mm-hmm. where you see a lot of the model of the fitness industry is even with a lot of the more boutique boutiquey big box gyms. Quite honestly, they want you to pay a membership and get on the treadmill, get on the pre-core, and there you go. They watch TV. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a couch that you're burning some calories on, mm-hmm. but the calories don't have intent and they don't have interaction. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's really important is that what I think, you know, and people will eternally bash CrossFit, but what I think CrossFit did, one of the things they did really good is they built a community back up around it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, you know, being a martial arts head, you know, oh, they stole that from us. No, they call out, we call out everything. All art is theft, mm-hmm. you know, all good art is theft. So it's, you know, and being a musician, you know, we, we know that. Mm-hmm. We know that, mm-hmm. you know, um, we're none of us, these notes in this order first. Yeah. yeah. None of us are self-taught, mm-hmm. but uh, so, and what I tend to do is we get people who come in who, I've, you know, really they've, they've either started it at like one of the, you know, one of the gyms where it's a treadmill gym and, you know, they're told to keep it like, this is, you know, this is fitness. And what I try to do is dial back into what they did as kids. You know, what did you Uh do for play? You know, and if someone played soccer, okay. So you, you had at one point you had foot stability. Let's drill that back in. Mm-hmm. Let's get those, let's bang the, bang the rust off those neurons, especially with martial arts, mm-hmm. because people are always thinking, oh, punching, you know, you have a lot of blows from the, like the legs and everything comes from the floor. We derive all our power through the floor. So if you can get someone's feet in tune mm-hmm. and then get the head movement, everything in between that falls in, awesome. you know, uh, mm-hmm. striking straight. Here's, this is my theory on it. And I've been, I've been. You know, I've had people bump up against me about it, like especially in martial arts, because martial arts is so steeped in what tradition. I call tradition mm-hmm. and what I call mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of and it's surprising a lot of martial artists or, or martial arts instructors tend to stay away from this four letter word called science, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, no one likes to hear that their Bible has typos is what I always say. Mm-hmm. And. Striking and martial arts in general and all athletics. I mean, there's one sport that I know of really that happens on two feet and that would be powerlifting. Mm. Okay. Everything else is on one foot. And in that the human body works in certain movement patterns most optimally. Mm -hmm. And if you take, you look at someone who teaches sprinting like Martin Rooney Mm -hmm. and you take why his, why the people that train striking with him do so well, because he gets them able to run faster Striking mm-hmm. is a gate pattern. Uh-huh. And you're if you exactly you're mm-hmm. shifting the weight and neurologically you're on off, on off, on off, on off. Mm-hmm. And if you can get someone to understand that, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little time. But if you can get someone to understand that and it opens up and then that shit becomes fun. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to swear mm-hmm. here? You can actually. Okay, good, yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Then it becomes fun because that's the whole idea is that th- this should be fun. Exactly. This should be fun. Right. It's your body. It's movement. It's a an successful, ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. A successful class for, for me when I'm teaching Muay Thai is when I hear people laughing, uh-huh. when I people having a good time, That's no matter awesome. how, how good they are. And I'll correct somebody and I will correct them like three to four times. And usually at that point you get like, Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not expecting, I don't expect you to get it today, mm-hmm. but I'm going to, to hear it. I'm going to keep reinforcing it, it so that you think of it when you're out of here. And by the time you come back in, maybe in a week, maybe two weeks, you'll start to get that. 
Mm-hmm. It's my job to re- as an instructor. It's my job to facilitate that reinforcement, you know. And I don't like to be the heavy. I don't want to be a heavy handed like you're not doing it right. Why, you know, mm-hmm. the the typical martial arts picture of like walking around with a stick hitting your you know your students. That that to me doesn't Do you, work. Can they pay extra for that? That's a different modality than I teach. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't have enough leather for that. Uh, so going back for a second, I mean, the, the fitness should be fun. There should be a joy in yeah, movement. It's a yeah. self-expression in the same way that the art and the music should be fun. Yeah. So how did you get into music in the first place? Um, my first, let's see. Well, my first, my first, the th- I think, I was always around music, but the thing that made me want to play music was mm-hmm. like the first real live show I went to, which was actually Waylon Jennings. Really? In a roadhouse. Yeah, in New Hampshire. Um, and uh, it was a total accident, but I saw this guy on stage with a guitar, and he was so fucking cool. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to play guitar. And it was funny because I, you know, I instantly wanted to play guitar and I went out and I, you know, I got some of his records and there was some stuff there mm-hmm. that I really liked, but then there was some stuff that I was kind of like, eh. and mm-hmm. then I happened across this shit called black Sabbath. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then it was like, Oh yeah, this is all, this is all what I want to hear all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, awesome meeting again. Good to meet you. Yeah. Good. Um, and, uh, and I start, you know, you Black Sabbath and then, you know, Motorhead and heavy, a lot of heavy metal, mm-hmm. a lot of heavy metal and um, oddly a lot of blues because uh-huh. the country thing made me, people are like, oh, well, if you like that end of country, mm-hmm. then you're going to like this. And I started hearing things like Sun House and B.B. Uh, King and Muddy Waters and Freddie King was always one of my favorites, mm-hmm. um, like blues players. Uh, Elvin Bishop, like a lot of like, you know, like that. And I didn't think about it at that point because eventually like I morphed into punk. But to mm-hmm. me, that I look back at it now, that blues stuff, that is like, you know, I've lived in an Econoline van for months and years on end before. That's what these guys used to do. You know, mm-hmm. Chuck Berry basically, you know, toured. He was in making tons car. in his car, mm-hmm. you know, the same thing with, you know, same thing with Hank Williams Sr. You know, mm-hmm. all those guys lived in the back of their car. That, that shit was punk. So when did you start playing out? Probably about 14, 15, like, you know, little basement clubs like the Anthrax in Stanford, Connecticut. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I played once at like Neither Nor, mm-hmm. which was right down the street from where I was. It's a motorcycle shop now. And then, uh, you know, CB's was the strong, was the staple. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, places like that and, you know, small, you know, anybody who had a garage who could set up a punk show uh-huh. kind of thing and like you know, friends barbecues and, you know, but the CBs was the Mecca at that point, you know, it's like when you right. played CBs, you kind of, as were a you teenager, doing matinees or were you doing evening? I was shows? doing matinees, you mm-hmm. know, the, the evening shows you go to one every once in a while, because by the time I got into it, they had started to really sort out like the matinees, the punk rock matinee shows like mm-hmm. around like 84 and stuff. They, they were sorting out. They, I think Hilly realized that the kids at the, he had to keep like the hardcore kids out of the general population, so to speak, uh-huh. like the old, because you know, the, you came out of this older punk scene and like one of the only people that really had really come from that scene was Harley. Harley had grown mm-hmm. up in that, right, with the stimulators you know, with the stimulators and, and like, yeah. you know, and had morphed into that. And like a lot of us were, you know, like mid eighties kids, mm-hmm. you know, Harley was, you know, like in seventies, you know, he was there when the shit it was mm-hmm. incepted. And uh, so, 
you know, it was a lot that, and like there was like the Pyramid Club on Avenue A, right, right. And, and you know, A seven, and like you know, then there was a, oh god, what was that? The place on Second Avenue it collapsed now. It was an antique shop, but they they used they had shows all the way at the roof, and I remember Ditto Montiel used to be like he wasn't really the elevator guy, but he was always. Mm-hmm. Manning the, the elevator. elevator. <laughs> yeah, Manning the elevator. And, uh, you know, Ditto, who, you know, played in a bunch of bands and, like, you know, is now, like, you know, a director, major mm-hmm. director. But, yeah, um, you know, and that was kind of it. And it was, you know, you lived on your skateboard. You slept in, you know, slept at friends' houses and in abandoned buildings and mm-hmm. weird stuff like that. You know, that's how I grew up. You know, it was like you got jobs in nightclubs. And it was – it's funny, too, because it's like you see now where – you know, this, the trans, the trans thing, which I think is, it's so great that it's, it's, it's what's happening with it now, but it's weird because growing up around the drag scene and the gay mm-hmm. scene and in the mm-hmm. nightclubs, and it was always, I never really thought about it as much. And it was not like, and now there's, there's specific kind of like, you know, there's a nomenclature and there's a vocabulary mm-hmm. that you need to, you know, and I'm still finding myself having to be able to adapt to that. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a 51 year old old, old man, mm-hmm. you know, I hate saying, I don't like saying old, old man. I don't, don't mm-hmm. feel that at all, but you know, there's certain ways that I have to be, I have to evolve my behaviors because mm-hmm. there are there. I mean, there's members that I deal with that are coming in from that community and mm-hmm. you want to be able to have a vocabulary with them and you want to be able to speak that dialect. And it's, I've had arguments with Friends of mine who are the same age, are like, oh man, oh they need that, you know, like this. I prefer to be called this and that and the other thing. And the way I was always raised, because I travel a lot, is like when you go to someone's, so you know, you go to someone else's country, you learn, you at least learn mm-hmm. how to right. greet you them. To show some you learn how to greet yeah. them and mm-hmm. speak to, with respect. them exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's something we learn. You know, I learned through Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, traveling and. But that's the thing is you don't you don't want to alienate people. And I've had a few situations where I have, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've done, you know, I've, I've done un, unwittingly crossed lines and been like, oh, fuck, I need to correct mm-hmm. that. You know, well, as long as you have the awareness. I mean, I think yeah. part of the, you know, when we have this bigger discussion of political correctness, whether it's in fitness or in music or yeah. whatever, you know, nobody's perfect. But no. the thing is to accept, oh, I might have offended you and it was not my intention to offend you. Yeah. You well, know, that, that that's not where I'm coming from. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the thing that I have, you know, I I've had to ask, it, it's weird being an instructor because people put you on this point of like, you know, like, Oh, well you're going to, you're, you're a crew, you're infallible, which is like, you know, there's an old saying I love. I learned it from black belt from, from jujitsu. He's a black belt in jujitsu, but he's a white belt in life, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, right. And that's one of the things and like, you know, and that the part of the hazard of always approaching things with a learning mind is there's, you have to admit there's things that you do not know. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to approach things with a beginner's mind all the time for them to stay fresh. And as an instructor, I've had to evolve countless times, mm-hmm. you know, I've gotten my teaching modalities to a certain area and been like, okay, this is really good. Then I realized I'm like, you know what? If I change this a little bit, I could make this better. Mm-hmm. And or a new student comes in and the yeah. things you've been doing all of a sudden aren't working. Aren't working because people people are different, you know, third-class lever systems. Mm-hmm. You know, no one works exactly the same. We're all third-class lever systems, but everybody, you know, when and that comes down to 
everything mm-hmm. from bone length to tendinous you know, insertions, exactly, like and neurological aptitude. Things. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. You know, you have to. One of the best things I ever learned was you can't train people on a point of skill set. Mm-hmm. You have to train them on a point of neurology because not everybody has skills, but everybody has neurons. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, uh, you know, and but that's something that you know on a daily basis you're always working with and I've learned that with working with kids, mm-hmm. you know, cause kids have such quick, you know, like their neuroplasticity, they grasp the stuff mm-hmm. so quick. And then you get, you'll get someone who's 35 coming off the couch has been told like, Oh yeah, exercise is useless and da, 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 da. But they want to, I think that we all, and I mean, I, of course I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think a lot of the modern maladies that are going on that we're, prescribing away can be cured through physical culture. Absolutely. You know, I don't think that we move enough. You know, mm-hmm. I know that I get really agitated if and I don't. And just using the word physical culture is telling us, you know, we need to get back to how yeah. we were moving in the 1880s and the mm-hmm. early 1900s. Yeah. Because that was the physical culture movement and all yeah. the Indian clubs, the boxing, the wrestling, Absolute, the medicine balls, absolutely. all of those but things. But we, as we've evolved technologically, We've started to lose these things, and I've like we've become a society that's got really dead feet, but really deft polysis muscles. <laughs> Absolutely, <you know? laughs> and uh-huh. uh, and sore necks, and sore necks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I have to catch myself too. I think one of the best apps I've gotten is on the iPhone. Is a thing that tells you how much time you're spending on a screen. Uh-huh. Because I mean, as a as a business owner, I'm constantly on it because of right. you know you so, got to promote stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. but. You know, and I, I don't know if he was the first person to say it, but, uh, you know, I have to catch myself because it's one of those, it's one of those, uh, social, uh, social network things. Um, you know, Jason C. Brown said, sm- likes are the new smoking, uh-huh. you know, right. and you're it's, going yeah, on there. you need to get and on you, there. You got to get a little, I got to get that. Mm-hmm. I got to get that dopamine rush. I got to, you know, so I make a point of like doing, and putting my phone down and walking away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I was using it like the rationalization of using it for timer and this, that, and the other thing mm-hmm. I, I keep gym bosses in my, you know, I got mm-hmm. enough, I got them like right. cockroaches. Get back to low tech. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things and, you know, but you know, trying to build the business to what I'm trying to do, I have to be on this. I have to be on social media. I don't have to be on as much as I, mm-hmm. I will rationalize. Oh, well, this is, this is work related. This is mm-hmm. business and this is why I'm doing it. Yes, but you still have to calm down. I have still to be, have to be on a. On I have a, to be realistic about it. Yeah, on a ration, if yeah. you will. So I want to play either "Do or Die" or "Mountain." Which one are you feeling today? Uh, Can you give us a little "Run intro? Do or Die"? That's off the last record. Mm-hmm. "Do or Die." Um, it's funny because we we went into the studio with Kurt Ballou, um at God City, who he's probably he's in my opinion. Th- one one of the top five producers for heavy music and also just a, such a good guy. Still mm-hmm. really, really just like level, humble human being um, and just knows what works. And we went in and uh, it was, it was really great to work with him. Um, and just as this was the first time that Bernard, we, we had been EP Kings. We had done like tons of EPs. Mm-hmm. We had never done an album. So this was the first album we did and we'd signed a death wish and uh, they, they were like, yeah, we'll do this one off record with you. And, and we were totally psyched about it. Really loved how it turned out and I'm really psyched about it. But it was funny because 
going into it, you know, I'm, I'm always been someone who's like trying to move a little bit ahead. Mm-hmm. And I had people telling me, well, well, this is what the kids are listening to. And this is what I'm like, yeah, but someone else is already doing that. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's one of my pitfalls as a musician is kind of like, Oh, someone else is doing that. I don't want to sound like I'm ripping someone off. So I'm going to try to, and I always stay away from my friend's music. I, when, uh-huh. I, when I'm writing, you know, I'll listen to a, like a lot of EDM. I'll listen to a lot of blues. And I'll listen to mm-hmm. a lot of stuff like weirder stuff. Uh, I got into a lot of Bangra on this last record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it comes across in weird ways. Uh, there's definitely that hardcore element there, but we really tried to expand on what we were doing because Burns never been a typical hardcore band. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were you know called post hardcore, whatever that is. We just, I mean, if you need to categorize it, I guess so. It's just all to me, it's all just music, mm-hmm. you know? Well, let's take yeah. a listen. Here we go. This is Burn, Do or Die.
All right, that was Burn with Do or Die, and we're here on Radio Free Brooklyn, the physical culture, music, and art show with Gavin Van Vlack. Hello. <laughs> What's right. going on? So, Gavin, can you tell us a little bit about how people can come into Physical Culture Collective, where you're located, what sort of things they can do to get started there? Absolutely. Um, we offer we offer uh, complimentary intro classes for Muay Thai on Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. and Saturday at 11.30 a.m. We also offer uh, intro complimentary intro to jujitsu at uh, 6.15 on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh, you can email us at physicalculturecollective at gmail.com. That's the best way to contact us. I do check the answering service on the uh phone, but the best way to get in contact with us is via email. We are also at Physical Culture Collective on Instagram and Physical Culture Collective at Facebook. Um, I can be reached uh, directly at Instagram at GVV Strong um, if you need to contact me about anything. Um, and like I said, it's uh, what we have is we're using... Uh, I don't like to use the terminology like combat sports and fighting arts and da da da. What we're teaching kind of is uh, play based skills or skill based play for that matter. So um, you don't have to be all like no angry no no and want to punch people. No no no. I've, I've had that. people be like, well, you know, I really don't want to compete, and that's perfectly fine. You don't. There's mm -hmm. so many other things you can do. Pad work you know, mm -hmm. like light, light drilling and stuff like that, that just, and, and let alone we're for what we are as a martial arts facility, we offer a very extensive, uh, you know, I like, I, I like to call it an athletic development program where we have kettlebells, we have the sandbags, uh, we have squat racks, uh, we have two amazing woodway treadmills. Mm -hmm. We have ergs. We've got, you know, half of our gym is turfed. Uh, you know, we've got stall bars. We've got everything that the old, that the old physical culture mm -hmm. studios used to have plus some. Um, and what we work on doing is like, my theory is that if we can get you to move properly and we can get you stronger and we can get you faster, provided that you're sleeping well and doing all the mm -hmm. good stuff on the outside, all the aesthetics are a byproduct of that. And that's what makes it fun because if you're constantly looking at the scale, you're it's it's a bad feedback loop mm -hmm. because that's really a misjudgment you know knowing mm -hmm. you know unless you have to be at a weight to compete i tell people get a pair get get some clothing that you want to fit into mm -hmm. and let's use that as a measurement because i think and, and people are smart now they're getting away from the concept that like oh well i need to weigh this much the fashion mm -hmm. industry lost out with that because they're like oh well this woman she's you know five foot ten and she's 110 and if you're naturally that i've got a couple of athletes that are naturally that Perfectly good. Thank you very yeah. much, Gavin. See you next.